Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. What is your life insurance policy worth while you're still living? It may seem like a strange question, but the answer is frequently more than you would expect. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I speak with Abacus Life President and CEO Jay Jackson. Abacus Life has made a business of buying consumer life insurance policies for upfront payments and holding them until maturity. To help bring this particular kind of transaction more into the mainstream, Abacus Life announced a $618 million combination agreement with East Resources Acquisition Company in August. He explains how these policies can be bundled together to create uncorrelated assets that are attractive to institutions for hedging, and why he sees a SPAC deal as the right way to fuel the growth of Abacus Life's model. Take a listen. So Jay, just to start off, I can say that I personally was totally unaware that there was such a liquid secondary market for life insurance policies. And I think the same is likely the case for many of our listeners. So yeah, just when did this first come onto your radar as a, as a major opportunity? Sure. It really came out of my radar, goes back to the early 2000s, uh, is really when you first started to see how this market was evolving. And like any new markets, you know, you have some shakeout in the beginning, right? Where you have people that are trying to figure it out and then you're waiting. And at the time I was working with a family office and we were looking to invest in non-correlated assets. And we were introduced to this asset, yet at the time we were just getting comfortable with what it was. Right at the time, if you go back to the late 2000s, the way you participated in insurance was through either insurance-linked securities, longevity contract issued through reinsurance companies, those those types of financial instruments. And then we were introduced to this through someone in the insurance business who had said, "Hey, are you aware you can pick up this contract effectively on the front end, not have to buy the risk from the reinsurance company at X yield, but in fact you could buy the risk from the consumer." And initially, we had our own reservations going, well, gosh, is this, is this legal? Like, is this something that, <laughs> you, you know, we can legally do as, as an investor? The last thing we wanted was this mindset of, oh, my gosh, there's this 80-year-old woman who is potentially, you, you know, wasn't told all the information. She sold their policy, and then something happens, and then we face some sort of liability or headline risk. And what was great about this business specifically is we've seen a large amount of growth happen since 2004, really key marking in about 2015, when over that, let's say 11 year time period, regulatory really came in and it became regulated in nearly every state. If you go to 2005, there were two states that regulated the transaction, whereas 2015 and 16, nearly every state had some sort of regulatory in relationship to someone selling their life insurance policy. And so you know, when that happened, you really started to see a lot more institutional acceptance. Um, Because the tragedy here is that most people have no idea that their policy has a current net present value. And that net present value on average, just Abacus, our company, paid on average over eight times of what the value would have been had they just simply let the policy go. In insurance terms, that's called a lapse. But it's, it's a massive industry. It's $13 trillion of individual life insurance in force. What's stunning and staggering is that 90% or nine out of 10 life insurance policies will never pay a claim. It's obviously a great business, right? It, it <laughs> shouldn't be a shock why most insurance companies have the biggest building in nearly every city. When you think about it, you issue $13.5 trillion of paper and you collect premiums on it and yet only 10% of it will you expect to pay a claim on. And I think that that really resonates with people in the sense that people just don't realize that. 
they just are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that A, the market was that big, but B, so much of it never paid. Yeah, definitely. And so in, in terms of your own growth, I mean, you mentioned you kind of uh, got started in, in 2004. Kind of how did you approach this new real market, new asset class as it was going? Were you sort of tracing geographically the states where it was opening up and kind of following the, the regulations there? Sure. It's, it's, it's a great question. And as the market grew, that's, that's what was happening. But frankly, the states that led regulation were population driven by seniors anyways. So it was going to be the states that you were going to lean towards. Like, for example, Florida has been truly a leader in regulatory of this transaction. And the main piece of regulatory here is, is that if you're going to be able to acquire and purchase a policy like Abacus, you have to go through a very strict licensing process, audits every year, reviews every year by that state. And that's every individual state. And then each individual state has their own documents that are issued with their own disclosures to make sure that there are lots of consumer protections. So it started in the larger states, effectively Florida, New York, and California, Texas. And then most of the other states after that adopted some sort of regulation. But the challenge that it represented for a number of companies was that now you had to go and get, what, 50 individual state licenses to operate and do this, whereas many states require deposits and, and bonding, uh, and you're regulated. And so, you know, it became quite cumbersome, cumbersome for the typical investor just to come in and say, oh, I want to buy a single policy in the state without having the proper licensing to do so. So it, it led to a bit of a concentrated origination strategy with a number of companies kind of leading the path. And what would you say are some of the main reasons that someone would decide to sell their life insurance policy? Sure. It's twofold, really. What really happens with life insurance is that most of the time when someone turns age 75, right, they start to look at their lives a little bit differently, right? Not just in life insurance, but what else do they do? They look at their homes different. And so they tend to downsize. They might look at their financial situation and say, gosh, do I need you know, all of this type of life insurance coverage because my heirs or my children, when I originally took the policy out, when maybe they were 50 or 55 or 60, are now maybe 45 and 50 years old. What do they need a million or 2 million or 3 million or $5 million worth of coverage for? And so many times what people will do is they'll say, gosh, I don't need that much coverage. I'm going to simply you know, let that policy go. Because when you get to that point in your decision process, what else are you going to do with that policy? If you don't really need it for your estate plan anymore, and it's already served its purpose, what are your financial options? Traditionally, it's been, oh, I'll just effectively let it go. I'll stop paying premiums. Um, and that happens to the tune of effectively 90% of the time. Our message is quite simple. If you do that, you're leaving potentially an 8x on the table. Well, where does that multiple come from? It's a simple solve of net present value. What we do is just like personalized medicine. We come in and we underwrite their life insurance policy and their health as though it were today. And we say, you know, you're 75 years old. You would be expected to use this coverage for the next effectively 14 years to age 89. And we utilize very similar but more advanced um, underlying mortality tables and data to help give them more accurate data and not just for their life insurance, but their financial planning for their own longevity. Uh, and then we do a simple solve for net present value. All we do is really simple. We say, hey, if you have a million dollar policy, it may not be worth effectively nothing. So don't just stop paying the premiums. That today's net present value could be $250,000 we'll take over future premium payments and we'll pay you the net present value of 250 today. 
in 14 years, it's worth a million, right? Because that's effectively when the mortality event might occur. But today, it's not worth zero, right? Your life insurance policy is an asset that you own. For example, when people fill out the application on the life insurance policy, you know the first section that they complete? It's titled owner. And it's because you own the contract, just like your home or any other asset that you have, which is supported by a 1911 Supreme Court ruling. And in Grigsby v. Russell, what they said was, was that life insurance is in fact personal property, which can be sold and transferred to a third party. The challenge we face is that nobody's aware that this can really happen, right? Our market amidst this $13 trillion industry, we figured in our market or target in our market, those over the age of 65, uh, there's about 233 billion per year that lapses, which is a staggering number. Our entire industry only picked up about 4 billion of that. So we have this massive addressable market with a long run room to go, very high barrier to entry that's focused on education, which took us back to, well, why would we consider, you know, logically using a SPAC or going public? Got it. And then just how big is the market for these policy assets and what portion of it is actively traded? Sure. The, the market's significant, but let's, you know, think about what we're comparing it to, right? So if, if you think about the market itself in new, what we would say is newly purchased policies, that means that we purchased them within the past year, that comes out to right about $4 billion per year of new contracts that we as an industry will purchase every year. And then we aggregate those into larger, larger tranches. Effectively, they look and feel like a laddered bond portfolio. The difference being is that the underlying asset itself, our counterparty is an A-plus rated carrier but the underlying asset itself is effectively non-correlated uh, to any other market indice, right? So it doesn't matter what the S&P does or any other bond indice. Here I've got an A-rated type, type of product that's uncorrelated. And so there's a very high demand institutionally for this. The issue isn't you know, a matter of saying, hey, how, how much can we, how liquid is our market, which I think you're asking a little bit. It's very, very liquid. We have far excess cash than we have to be able to buy policies. Most institutions are looking to access this asset right now. It's kind of a perfect storm for us, right? One, we have ultimately a seller or a holder of a contract that in a recessionary environment or inflationary environment is seeking liquidity, and they didn't even know that they had this liquid option in their life insurance policy. And then second to that, I've got an uncorrelated asset in a very volatile market with nearly double-digit yields. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to get to next is your process effectively. I yeah. mean, do you advertise directly to the policyholders or are you picking up a, a large portion of this uh, of these policy assets that are already sort of floating in that secondary market? Yeah, we we are the actual originator. So our focus for origination is mainly driven in in two areas. First and foremost, by insurance agents and financial advisors. So over the last 20 years, we have spent really built this business brick by brick by sourcing educating, working with financial advisors, also working at a national account level to educate the natural compound that, that of their firms that this is a compliant regulated transaction. Education is our lead drive. Then after that, we will do marketing directly to consumers, but with the idea that we're trying to push them back towards their financial advisor. Our, our belief is that they should have a financial advisor or some sort of consultant involved in this transaction. And we source a majority of our policies utilizing either their insurance agent or their financial advisor. 
kind of moving to the next stage of that, what sort of systems do you have in place for deciding which policies you want to acquire and, and which ones you want to hold to maturity versus trading on to other buyers? Sure. It's what we developed was utilizing all of the analytics to help establish where we determined risk to be. You know, as great as these contracts are, as one risk is, is in fact longevity risk or extended duration. Unlike a traditional fixed income instrument where you have a set end date or maturity date, here that date could fluctuate. It could be in front of your estimate or it could be in fact longer. And so because of that volatility is why you ultimately have a higher yield. And what we determine is, is that we built in-house proprietary data systems that can very quickly assess that risk almost instantly. And it heat maps that risk into eight different categories. And to make it really simple, what we do is, is that we put that risk tranche just like you would with any other kind of credit tranche or, or specialty finance tranche. And then we look at that and we say, okay, this tranche possesses higher risk. And therefore, you know, what we mean by risk is extension risk. And therefore that risk should be better suited for a larger portfolio. Most of our partners, not all of them are very large financial institutions that you would all know very, very well and utilize this asset to, for a variety of things, right? To offset some of their duration, but is it because it's essentially an uncorrelated asset, it fits really well within a number of very large credit strategies. It just depends on the duration and structure that they have left of their PE funds. So we will take a percentage of those assets, hold it on our own balance sheet, and then we'll take another percent of that, aggregate, and we'll effectively tranche and, and resell those pools of policies back into larger institutions. And that percentage will change based upon you know, what the timing of the market and the, and the actual capital that we have coming into the market. Our premise is though, is, is that, you know, we're able to utilize all of this because of our origination platform. If we can increase the awareness and knowledge to consumers that this financial option exists for them, it really opens up how much more we could do to meet the uh, capital needs that we have that want to come into the market. Right. right now, there's massive excess capital coming into the market. And so we're more than likely going to trade more tranches than we would hold on our balance sheet to meet that capital demand. Got it. And then just looking at your materials, you had a great first half of the year in terms of increasing revenue, but even more so on returns. So what changed in your approach to account for that swing? Yeah, we are also working with a number of institutions that are looking to aggregate larger pools of assets. So it's a very good point because what we see and where we sit as the origination company, which is where Abacus is, we're really at the center of this entire industry in the sense that when we aggregate a pool of tranche of policies, we'll aggregate those through our own origination machine. These have all been recently underwritten. And then we put those together in tranches and then we'll either resell or hold, hold those. But then there's another large piece of our business where we work specifically with other institutions. So that institution who owns a large book of policies may, will in fact come to us, we will re-underwrite that book and then we'll sell that book on their behalf. And when that happens, we don't really have any capital out, right? So our ROE on that's gonna be substantially higher. So we've seen a significant uptick in the institution to institution piece of our business. And it's mainly because we have, again, this excess capital that's trying to access the market where they're more comfortable with where the yields are that they can take on this kind of assets because it's uncorrelated, because we have such a great counterparty. And we're able to aggregate now larger pools and larger tranches for these institutions who want to come in with maybe 250, 500 million or, or even a billion dollars all at once. 
I can't originate that in the next 30, 60, 90 days when they want to allocate. But what I can do is work with other institutions and, and potentially package the right risk tranche for this new institutions. And effectively, we're doing an institution to institution sale. And we've seen that uptick very significant this year. And I think that's driven by, like I said, more large institutions are trying to access our asset. And it puts us in really a terrific spot because this business and this trade is about information asymmetry. And Abacus sits at the center of that information portal. And then, so we briefly touched upon this earlier that insurance is normally such a regulation heavy market, but for the activity that you engage in with buying and selling these policy assets, can you dive a bit deeper as to what kind of regulatory structures you have to deal with at the state and then the federal level? So there's, there's two answers to that question, two different stages. There's the initial stage, which is the origination directly from seller of the policy. And that's a heavily regulated transaction. Each state documents are, are in fact approved by that state. And we have to go through an extensive process, including extensive background and due diligence on the seller, the owner. We have beneficiaries sign off to ensure that the beneficiaries of the policy are aware that this transaction is occurring. We also have neurological sign-off from their physician that says that they're of the right state of mind to be able to sign and sell this contract. After that, once we own these contracts, it's the contracts themselves are not a security. And so we're not subject to traditional you know, SEC or FINRA regulations when we then take that tranche and resell it. One of the things that we found most appealing in going public was that because of that piece, this really opens up, I think, a lot of transparency to how we operate, how our business operates, how we work with other institutions so that, you know, maybe it's still not regulated, but from an SEC perspective as a publicly traded company, it's going to give a lot of trust from other institutions to come in and purchase in this business. And that's what we're really trying to achieve here. As people learn more about this transaction, one of the things that people first think about is they go, gosh, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, that makes me feel funny, you know, and, and I always ask people the same question whenever I'm speaking to a group, I, I would say, you know, you feel that way because you probably have a long life in front of you, right? <laughs> At least you're perceived you do, right? You're, you're a bit dislocated from your own mortality. Speak to someone who's 75 or 80. It's a much different mindset, right? Uh, most of the time they're, you know, they're thinking, hey, I'm, I'm trying to plan for my estate and put those things together. And when we get to that point of understanding how mutually beneficial this is, ultimately to the seller of the contract, more and more institutions are coming into the space. What we're able to do is to provide them a significant amount of comfort and data and now transparency by being a public company. Yeah, that transitions perfectly into what I wanted to get into next, which is just sort of, you know, as you've been building this business, how did you kind of get to the, the point where you decided now actually is, you know, the right time for us to go public? And how did that sort of conversation lead you into this back route as opposed to IPO or some other alternative funding sure. options? Sure, we, we certainly looked at them and, and we had been in a large partnership with one of the largest top three private equity firms in the United States, where we had a JV investment fund. And it was a separately managed account that we ran on their behalf. And that we had been successfully doing that over the last three years. Prior to that, we, we were using our own capital to tranche and build these pools. And that was driven by scale, right? We, we went out and sought a much larger institutional capital partner to kind of drive that scale. And I give you that background just because it wasn't something that we thought, oh, gosh, let's, let's go public so that we could get scale. We already have scale. From our perspective, it, what really led into that decision and why didn't we just either 
stay private and work with a private equity firm um, or a large credit firm versus you know going public and and or working within a SPAC. The SPAC we we had looked at. And as we began the process, we had initially thought, yeah, let's just stick with a large PE firm, utilize their capital, stay private. But what we realized in that process is, is that the key driver for our success long-term is to drive origination, to really drive consumer awareness that this opportunity exists. So for us, a SPAC was actually a logical choice. Because even in this podcast, I think that people are going to sit back and look and say, man, I had no idea about this market. It was correlated. It was so large. It was all those things. But it took us 20, 25 minutes to get there. <laughs> Imagine if I went through a traditional IPO and I had 10 days to tell that story. No one would care. In all honesty, no one would care. I have got you know, effectively a company here with 18 years of consecutive net positive revenues, massive barriers to entry, a 20% market share, right? Um, terrific year-over-year -year growth revenues, net revenues that, that everybody can be excited about. We manage an uncorrelated asset in a very volatile market. You would think people would care. They don't, right? What they cared about was that, can they look at Abacus and can Abacus effectively be validated through, other op through, through either other people, other firms, other companies, and most importantly, be transparent as a public company? So when we were introduced to uh, the sponsors of this SPAC, it made a lot of sense to us from the sense of one, I actually felt the timing was great for us as a SPAC, right? One, it was going to be uncrowded and people kind of laugh when I say that. I'm like, yeah, it's true. It is uncrowded. But it was uncrowded for a company like ours for all the reasons we just laid out, right? It made perfect sense that, gosh, here's this company with, with years of consecutive revenue. I, I think about what SPACs were originally designed for, and they were built for a company like us to really draw awareness get the resources and expertise of a really good sponsor. Sponsor in this back is East Resources, uh, sponsored by the Pagula Family Office and Caledine Capital run by Jim Morrow, who have not only deep resources, but deep knowledge, huge experience in regards to public equity markets with, with Jim Morrow. So we picked up this terrific sponsor with a very favorable outlook for our company. And plus it gave us three or four months to really go out and tell this story and begin to get shareholders comfortable. You know, I, I can tell you since we made the announcement, we've seen a, a significant uptick just in our origination inquiries, which is what we wanted, right? We've seen 15 plus percent uptick of origination inquiries for people who are now interested in selling their policy. They didn't even know it existed or this opportunity existed for them. And it's because they feel like, oh, okay, you're a public company. There's some trust here, right? And we're willing to expose our entire inner workings so that people could gain trust and that we could then, you know, hopefully increase our origination because of it. But that was the main driver for choosing a SPAC over a traditional IPO or even just remaining private with a PE. It was really to drive awareness so that people could understand this financial option existed and that they knew that we existed. Yeah, I mean that kind of answers one of my other questions. In that, I'm just interested. In it. It's something that I hear a lot from um, you know companies that that wind up partnering and combining with SPACs is just you know a big part of it is just how different that conversation becomes. You know, an IPO roadshow where you're having to have uh, so many different you know, conversations just to you know get and 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 having actually very little control. It's not quite an, a full on direct negotiation process and all of that. 
The other thing that I think a lot of people look at it when they look at uh, SPAC transactions are a year or two ago in the SPAC cycle, the way that many of these transactions would in some ways kind of verify themselves is, is the, you know, the size of, uh, of the pipe investment they would get attached to that. Mm-hmm. We've seen that the market for that has gotten way more difficult. I and mean, that's just that's, that's just a case of the, the macro environment and all of that. But your materials note that you're looking to also raise about $100 million in debt alongside um, the proceeds here. And so, but it sounds like also the way that your, your business model works is you already have access to capital and, and ways of conducting these transactions with, with partnered capital and, and, and taking right. a different role within that. So I'm just, I'm just interested though, sort of in general to kind of get out there. I mean, what, how much does your uh, business plan change uh, depending upon what the, the final proceeds end up being here? And how does your process change if some of those other things become a little more difficult? Sure. We're fortunate in that even if with the amount of money still in the trust, if we anticipate that most of that either redeems as we've seen in most facts, from a pipe perspective, our approach in speaking to institutions within a pipe, most of them are already working with us, right? <laughs> it, it, because they want to acquire and own these tranches of policies for their own book of business. And so, you, you know, we, we have a unique advantage where they're very familiar if they're not familiar with us, but for the most part, they are, they've transacted with our company. I think that from our perspective, even if we raise pipe capital or we don't, our business model doesn't really change. You know, we, we're fortunate again, in the sense that we're a positive net revenue company, regardless of whether money, you know, how much money stays in or doesn't, or, or, or whether we raise pipe capital or not. What would happen is, is that if we did raise a significant amount, you know, and we added a hundred million dollars in potential debt financing at the appropriate price, we would retain more policies on our balance sheet with that. And that would just drive our, drive our balance sheet assets up. But if not, we would just continue to build our origination tranches and then take those and then resell them institutionally, which, you know, frankly, there, there are institutions that would love us to continue that model, right? So that, so that their, their flow doesn't change. I think we were considering looking at a debt model because our assumption is, is that our origination is going to increase with this back. In that, and we already have, right? Once we close an IPO, we firmly believe we're going to see more origination from advisors, agents, state planning attorneys who are now becoming aware of not just this liquidity option for their clients, but also advocates. And the idea was, hey, we should, we might want to have some more capital to pick that up on our own balance sheet because that could actually drive revenue even more. I was also really interested in how you mentioned the part of the the discussion between staying private and, and going public is not only putting more of a spotlight to this asset class, but also a little bit more transparency on, on some level as well. I'm curious, I mean, have you considered putting out some sort of public indicators about um, you know values here and, and, and kind of going yeah. that route as well? We are. In fact, I think in the first quarter, um, might even be as soon as January, we're going to launch an advertising campaign that is specific to that. One of the things that we have done is is that we have taken all of the data that we've aggregated over the last 18 years that can help people price policies effectively instantly, and we're giving it away. What we're saying to consumers is, is that let's remove the friction here and let's just produce knowledge. So we have an online policy value calculator that was originally designed for agents and advisors that we're now making consumer driven. And all they have to do is put in their age, gender, size of their policy and policy type, all basic things that they should know. And it would give them six outputs uh, literally instantly that says, hey, depending on what your health profile might be, here's what your policy might be worth. And we're launching that advertising campaign in January. And in that process, what that will do is is it really educate people to your point, 
to drive awareness and make it really, really simple for them. Because if you really look at the essence of what we are, yes, we're regulated and, and, and we're this origination company and drives a lot of value ultimately for the person who wants to sell their policy, but we're also a fairly significant data company. And if we can use that data in more intelligent ways to not only remove friction in the transaction, but most importantly, drive awareness and education, that's really what we're trying to do. We rolled out a site called AG9Q, which is a lot of fun. Go on it. You can actually take a selfie. It'll tell you your biological age versus your current age. Mm -hmm. um, some people, I tell them they should probably do it alone, but it's <laughs> <laughs> not what they're trying to do. But uh, in addition to that, it tells people what their health span is versus their lifespan using all of this underlying underwriting data that we've been aggregating for the last 18 years. And it's an important education tool because then you can make adjustments to that. You just like your credit score, you can come in and use a slider and say, well, what if I exercise more? Or what if I learn a second language? Or what if I increase my education or my income? We're going to put out an article here, I think in the next month or sooner, speaking about how does this decline of, or this volatility, inflation in the market, potentially decline of your net worth ultimately impact your lifespan? And it's significant. And, you know, we actually have the data to support that because we see it, right? That's, that's how we underwrite kind of what we call the back end of that curve. And so utilizing that data in very positive ways in an education way, I think adds a lot of visibility to what we can do and that awareness, the education, the transparency, all the things that make people feel comfortable. Right. And then just sort of going off of that, what are some of the other benefits that you're looking forward to leveraging from being publicly listed? Sure. I mean, outside of the awareness and, and, and um, kind of driving new origination, I, I think after that, it, it also comes down to, you know, are we able to lower our cost of capital over private sources? And I, that's definitely something that, you know, I think over, over time, we're, we're certainly looking forward to, because quite frankly, that just benefits the seller of the policy, the lower cost of capital we have, the ultimately the higher offers that end up going to the consumer. And I think that's in a very important benefit that, that someone could realize just by us being public, having access to public markets, whether that be debt or you know, other, other forms of credit that we can put together as a public company, I think is, is, is substantial. Definitely. And then do you see the potential to use M&A as a means of expanding your portfolio or capabilities? Mm -hmm. Definitely it is. And I think we'll see some consolidation within our industry. There's, there's some opportunity to consolidate, which would make things, uh, which would make the transaction itself certainly more efficient. And, and, and as a public company, that will give us uh, some opportunity and ability to, you know, to actually do that without having to go out and necessarily raise a bunch of capital. We can do certainly different types of M&A and not just within life insurance, right? There's, there's other types of products within what I would call the longevity space, annuities, et cetera, that I think that could be really interesting and that have and want to use and access our own data, including the life insurance companies. And then we've seen a lot of new digital insurance and insure tech companies hit the public markets over the past few years. So how much is the technology changing in your slice of the market? Boy, it's really interesting, you know, to not comment individually on any one of those opportunities that certainly came out, but a number of those opportunities that I can think of we're trying to simplify like an application process for someone getting new insurance. From our perspective, what we can do is, is that we're, we're a company that is going to be driven by a technology piece. But more, if you think about where we'll be in technology, it's we already have the data. Most technology is trying to use their technology to aggregate data. I already have it. 
Now is how do we deploy this in better and more intelligent ways? For example, one of the things I think will happen from our point of view, and by being a leader in the industry, we can actually derive it. And that is via, via, via blockchain within the contracts. And so, you know, taking blockchain and, and utilizing this entire contract process within a digital process, while doing that, what we can do is, is that now it makes the contract itself uh, much more accessible uh, to institutional investors and potentially any other investor. And now you have a real proof of title trust that can be exchanged many times. So as you're looking at this contract, it looks and feels much more like a mortality driven zero coupon, right? And as you get closer to that end effective mortality date or close to that range of what that date is, you'll start to see the underlying accretion rate of that contract increase, right? Regardless of what we think that yield estimate to be. So, you know, from our perspective, insure tech is generally driven around how do we, you know, uh, drive volume and efficiencies on the front end? Whereas the way we look at it is we have the data and then we're going to put technology, additional technologies on it to make it more efficient. And it's such a big difference, right? Because if you were to ask any large technology firm, what they would really want more than anything is our data. And what we're able to do is control our market and make sure that that data and that technology gets used in the most efficient way to do one thing continue to drive awareness, origination, right? If I can make this so simple to where a consumer uses our calculator and then they say, would you like to sell your policy? And they click that button and then that afternoon they're wired the funds. That's the ultimate goal here. It's going to take time, but it can certainly be done. Yeah, certainly. It doesn't sound like you're uh, looking at the business as being your next step to just spend a whole bunch of money on New York subway ads. Um, <laughs> again, not we are not. Anybody. No, you won't. <laughs> Probably won't see a stadium named after us. <laughs> we will, we'll, you know, any of the funds that we have are acquiring these great you know, contracts, which is great, right? It goes right to our balance sheet. And I think to me, it's one of the things I'm most excited about, right? As, as we, you know, somehow SPAC became a four letter word and it shouldn't, right? There are great companies like ours out there that, you know, can utilize this platform to go public, to drive awareness, lower cost of capital, find the right sponsor, kind of do it the way that I think that SPACs were potentially originally designed for three years ago. Totally. And so uh, before I let you go, can you give us a, a quick update in terms of what you're looking at in terms of the timeline of this transaction? And you mentioned some of the exciting things coming out in, in Q1 in terms of some of your, your marketing and information tools you're putting out there, but anything else that's uh, sort of exciting and around the bend for you? I, I think those are the most exciting for us. You know, I'll be excited when we can close. Uh, I'll tell you that <laughs> it's in, in this environment, I think that it's certainly a tough road to plow in a short amount of time. And I think that gets understated, right? People think that a SPAC is some easy route and it's not, right? You, you have to go through today more than ever the same processes I feel that you would if you were just doing an IPO, the, the amount of scrutiny that's kind of being placed on this. But in addition to that, we're timing wise, things look, I think, very, very good for us. And I think it speaks volumes to the you know, who we are as a company, right? By, by actually having earnings and, and, and you know, a, a long-term business model and, and data and all the things that people would want to see, you know, in a company, you know, the, the utilizing the spec process made the most sense for us. And we anticipate that when this closes, and, you know, and I think that our last press public announcement we were talking about end of the year, that, you know, that's driven by, uh, driven by our good friends at the SEC. So hopefully we remain friends, but <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, you know, but things, things look good.